So again, we're doing, like Stefan said, we're doing Habakkuk. <clears throat> Habakkuk's name means to, uh, to embrace or hug or caress. Uh, a number of scholars think he was a priest because in the final uh, section of his book, it reads like a hymn that uh, could have been used in temple worship. Uh, very similar to Psalms. Still, we don't know because we're, we're not told really anything much about him. Uh, but here's some food for thought. As, as we read Habakkuk, we're going to see that in some ways he takes on the role of a mediator between God and man uh, because he doesn't simply report God's words to the people or to the leadership of Judah, where he's ministering. So he doesn't just come in and say, thus saith the Lord, but rather he's, uh, he's interacting uh, with God. He's interceding on behalf of the people. And as you know, intercession was uh, typically seen as a priestly work or typically was a priestly work. So there may be some, some merit to the idea that he was a temple prophet and a, and a priest from the Levite uh, tradition. In fact, uh, in some early Jewish writings, and when I say early, I mean like third century or so, they have him coming from the tribe of uh, Levi, uh, though there are some others that have him in the tribe of Simeon. So again, you know, that's tradition, number one, and number two, we're, we're not told. Uh, a couple of other, other interesting things I came across about Habakkuk that I just want to share quickly. Uh, one is um, in the Apocrypha, so in, uh, in some of the books that uh, Catholic Bibles have in them that we wouldn't have in our Bibles. Um, in one of the books of the Apocrypha, Bell and the Dragon, it has a story where Habakkuk is carried by an eagle. I think it carries him by his hair, actually. It takes him from Judah to Babylon so that he can uh, provide Daniel with some stew to eat while he's in the den with the lions. And then the eagle comes and flies him back. To me, it kind of sounds like something from Lord of the Rings rather than something from the biblical history. But nevertheless, I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, one other interesting thing uh, that I came across about Habakkuk is that there's a medieval tradition. And when I say medieval, I think it's dated around the 1300s. Uh, but there's a medieval tradition that says that Habakkuk was the son of the Shunammite woman who the son that was res, uh, resuscitated by the prophet Elijah. So I don't know why that there's that tradition. I didn't have time to research it much, but there you go. Just something for, for fun. If you're ever t playing Trivial Pursuit, you'll have that. Okay, well, what about the dating of this prophecy or this oracle in this book? Um, as is the case with many of our prophets that we've uh, looked at, we can't precisely date it because we're not told uh, even uh, within whose reign the prophecy was given. But we do have a few clues. So uh, let me offer a couple. One, it has to be during a time of spiritual degradation in Judah. So the, they've sort of, uh, let's say, it's a time when the people are living in sin and there are problems so that a prophet would arise and come and pronounce uh, a word of judgment upon them. So that's number one. Number two, it, it does refer to the rise of the Babylonians. And although, uh, and so it's, you know, it's a time when the Babylonians are arising. So although God could certainly have inspired Habakkuk to know this, even during the height of the Assyrian empire, 
Uh, most scholars think that it is likely that Babylon was already beginning to emerge as a world power and that Assyria was in decline at the time. So that gives us a bit of a date there. And then third, Habakkuk is still, nevertheless, Habakkuk is told that the invasion uh, of Babylon will be shocking and surprising. So there are some scholars uh, who believe it has to be dated before the fall of Nineveh and certainly before the Battle of Carchemish, which ended the Assyrian army. And that's what the 612 and uh, 605 are. Um, of course, that interpretation requires us to take the shocking nature of the, of the Babylonians arising to refer to Babylon's, Babylon's rise to power and not to the fact that God is going to use evil people to judge his own people. Well, so what does that tell us? Well, probably then we should date it sometime during the reign of Jehoiakim. Uh, and I've given you the dates there, uh, right after the death of Je Josiah. So again, recall, even though Josiah had instituted uh, significant religious reforms, they did not last as Zephaniah had even warned. Uh, so Jehoiakim, whose, Hebrews, whose, whose Hebrew name was Eliakim, he was made king of Judah by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Uh, what had happened is after uh, Josiah died, the people tried to make Jehoiakim's half-brother, Jehoiahaz, king, but Pharaoh imprisoned him instead. So there's not a whole lot of information about Jehoiakim's reign uh, in Kings and Chronicles. So if you go and look there, you're not going to see a whole lot there except a few things. One, he imposed heavy taxes on the people of Judah to appease Necho. He did evil, we're told abominations, quote, according to all his fathers had done. And we also were told that he, we also know that he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon after serving him for three years. So it was during Jehoiakim's reign that Babylon sent several armies, the Chaldeans, the Arameans, Moabites, and Ammonites, against Judah. Ultimately, Jehoiakim became a prisoner of Nebuchadnezzar, who removed him from office, chained him, and even looted the temple of much of its sacred objects. Um, so this is like a forerunner to the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem and the temple uh, later in Zedekiah's reign in 586 BC. So all of that to say we're looking at around maybe 605, uh, 609 to 605 BC and uh, also it's kind of interesting to note that Habakkuk may have lived and probably lived to see the fall of Jerusalem about 25 years later. And I think Stefano was going to mention some of the other prophets who were contemporaries with Habakkuk then. Well, since we're taking the prophets one at a time, I like to kind of think, you know, how they overlapped, uh, who knew whom. And so um, if Habakkuk was a temple prophet, um, he possibly also uh, knew Zephaniah. Maybe he overlapped with Nahum. Um, he more than likely knew um, Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Um, he probably saw Daniel get deported in 605. He probably saw Ezekiel get deported after this death of, of Jehoiakim with that particular um, aggression of Babylon. 
and um, and and he may have uh, seen the fall, the actual fall of Babylon when Jeremiah would have still been there as well. So I think it's interesting to kind of think of think of them as a cluster um, to think how the prophets that we read just one at a time, how they might have been related and uh, known about each other. And, and later in later in the presentation, I'm going to have several uh, citations from Jeremiah just to to show like what what was being said cont contemporaneously with Habakkuk. All right, so <clears throat> the structure of Habakkuk then. Uh, this is a very basic structure, but this is sort of an outline of the book. So it begins with Habakkuk offering a complaint uh, to God. God gives him a very brief answer. Habakkuk comes back again with another complaint. God gives a more developed answer, and then Habakkuk closes with a song, or you might call it a psalm. Um, but like we said before, something that could have been sung in the temple, and in fact, it even says, you know, to be, uh, it gives us the tune that it's going to be uh, given, uh, sung with, and the, for the stringed instrument. So let's look at his first complaint. So when we look at his first complaint, it's only a few verses, but in essence, Habakkuk is asking God why he doesn't intervene in Judah, why God allows so much sin among his own people. And uh, so in the first part then, um, it's got several features, and, and what, I, what I thought would be a good way of thinking about his complaint is looking at the different kinds of questions he asks. So the first set of questions are in verse 2, and he says, how long will you wait? Why don't you listen? Why don't you act and save? Um, and what we see in that kind of questioning, uh, you know, he's asking this to God, is you have a strong sense of accusation here. It's like he's accusing God of something, you know, you're... You're just sitting there doing nothing, not listening, right? So there's a sense of accusation. And uh, it seems to me that then Habakkuk's way of questioning has forgotten God's long-suffering, patience, and mercy, right? It's probably a good thing God hasn't acted yet, right? And it's, it's reflective of God's patience with his own people, even when they sin. And praise God for it, right? Uh, also, though, in verse 3, we have another aspect to his complaint, and that's where he's asking questions like this. Why do you make me look on iniquity um, and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me, he says. So in this second part of the questioning, there seems to me, uh, seems to be a strong sense of self-righteousness here, right? Like, I'm so holy, my eyes can't bear to look on all this sin. Why, God, are you making me look at this? Um, and it seems to me that Habakkuk has forgotten his own sinfulness here. He's sort of like, he's sort of failing to recognize that, but for the grace of God, I'd be just like all these other people, right? And he also seems to have neglected to note God's holiness, like, it's not his holiness that's offended, it's God's holiness uh, that's offended. And then last, uh, Habakkuk, though, ties it all in, uh, so without, you know, trying not to be too hard on Habakkuk, he ties it all in, uh, in verse 4, where we see his concern really is for justice 
and righteousness. And these are words that in, in Hebrew and in Greek and, and throughout the Bible are very closely tied together, the notions of justice and righteousness. And I just like to jump in here yeah, <laughs> and say that the kinds of questions that Habakkuk is asking, like in the specifics, are possibly the kinds of questions that we might be bringing to God right now and saying, why uh, are you, aren't you listening? Why aren't you responding when we pray about violence, which is the word Hamas, by the way? Uh, violence and injustice and wrongdoing and oppression, which is the word plundering and strife and conflict, all of these things going on around us. How much longer until you respond? The law, he says, which is the word Torah, is rendered powerless and justice is prevented or perverted. How, how much longer is this going to go on? And, and you might feel like you could stand in Habakkuk's shoes right now and be asking these questions. So God's answer, what does God initially answer to Habakkuk? Well, in verse 5, God tells Habakkuk, um, I have heard, I do see, and I am about to act. And what I'm going to do, you know, when I begin to act, it's going to be shocking. It's going to be unbelievable. And he goes on to tell Habakkuk, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to use the Babylonians, those fierce, cruel, ungodly, and I think Stefana's going to elaborate on this in a minute, but these cruel, ungodly people, I'm going to use them to judge Judah. Um, and, even though, and even though the Babylonians are all these things, God will use them as instruments of his plan. But there's a catch. Right In verse 11, uh, Habakkuk says, they will nevertheless be held guilty for the atrocities they commit even while they are executing my judgment or being, let's say, being tools of my judgment. Well, this is a, uh, an interesting thing, right? This, this, this kind of uh, issue is the kind of thing that theologians and apologists and philosophers of religion have a field day trying to make sense of, um, right? These truths, trying to reconcile God's goodness and mercy and love and justice with his use of evil persons um, to meet his purposes. And then his subsequent judgment upon them for the evil they do, meeting those purposes. And this is, uh, this is kind of something Habakkuk is going to struggle with as well. And that's going to lead to his second complaint. But I want to pause because I think Stefana maybe had something else she was going to say. Well, uh, I just wanted to kind of lay out how Habakkuk presents um, this, this nation that is coming, this, I guess, this invader who is uh, coming against them, who God is bringing uh, against them. Um, he calls them a nation that's hasty and bitter. It's the, the same word that Naomi said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter, right? This is the kind of nation that's coming. Their, uh, verse 7 tells us their, that their law, their justice, uh, they have their own brand of justice. It's like saying they're a law 
unto themselves. Uh, they're described in terms of predatory animals, leopards, eagles, evening wolves, ravaging wolves. We saw this in Zephaniah 3 as well. Remember the evening wolves. And then um, um, horses are mentioned several times. This is like the pride of the Babylonian army. You know, they're strong and powerful cavalry. Their horses and their chariots. Um, their horsemen are from, from far away. They're swift. They fly like a vulture. They hasten to, to devour their prey, and they come for violence. Again, the word Hamas. So their, their faces are set. There are many riders. They have violent intent. They take heaps of captives. Um, nobody will escape or, or uh, have their status be respected. Um, clearly, they're a, a guilty nation. They're a sinful nation, which God will use to punish his own people's sins. He says that their strength is their God. And this will kind of come up again um, in uh, j just in, in another few verses. Um, their strength is their God. But uh, for Habakkuk, he says, um, you are my God. Yahweh is my God. He's holy. Um, he's the rock. Uh, he's from eternity. And he will not die. And so the Babylonians trust in their strength. But Habakkuk's God is you know, living and powerful. And Habakkuk understands that God is destining this to happen and it's going to happen. It's, it's just something that he will have to accept. Well, of course, this, this generates a second set of questions for Habakkuk or uh, let's say uh, a little bit of perplexity on his part. <clears throat> so Habakkuk begins his second complaint there in verse 12 uh, and on through to uh, kind of to, to verse one of chapter two. And so in his second complaint, he begins by saying, you know, it's a given. This is a given that God is good and pure. And, uh, and he even, he, he mentions uh, God's everlastingness. And I think by referring to God's eternity here, uh, Habakkuk is also appealing to God's wisdom and omniscience, you know, his all-knowingness. Uh, because notice that if you notice in verse 12, if you have your Bible open, he ties God's everlasting nature to his stability. Uh, he will not die. And he is, calls him, O rock, right? And to, so to his stability and his decision to use the Babylonians to judge. So there's a sense in which Habakkuk says, well, you're good and you're pure, you're all-knowing and you're wise. <clears throat> But then here comes the complaint, right? Now the question, how can you do this? <laughs> how can it be that you can use the unrighteous to judge your own people, who Habakkuk says are more righteous than they are? Now, <clears throat> of course, Habakkuk is making a couple, you know, making some assumptions here about relative, you know, relative righteousness among people. And he seems to have even forgotten or failed to, you know, incorporate his own complaints about how unrighteous Judah was just a few moments ago, right? If you remember his first complaint, he was complaining about Judah being so unrighteous and why do I have to look at all this sin? And now he's saying, well, how can you use those unrighteous people to, to judge Judah that's more righteous? But still, he's still left with the more perplexing question, and uh, so in verses 15 through 17, then he goes on to offer up elaboration on just 
how ungodly the Babylonians are. And he uses, <clears throat> he, he refers to some fishing metaphors that I think Stefano wanted to, to highlight. Yeah, you know how I like the literary features and stuff. Well, so tonight's literary uh, piece is on fishing, which just like with cooking, you know, I, I don't know how to fish either. Um, but I got this much. <laughs> um, I think the, the way that this metaphor is used, he's painting a picture of a very greedy uh, bunch of fishermen. Like they're just going to fish and fish and fish and fish till they, you know, empty out the sea, that they're greedy. So the way that Habakkuk proceeds, he talks about how how human beings, and he uses the word Adam, like Adam, okay, how human beings are like the fish of the sea. And like they're, they're not organized like a nation or an army or they, they have no defenses. The fish, that, you know, they're, they're just swimming along. And even though we might talk about a school of fish, I don't think we'd ever talk about an army of fish the way we talk about an army of locusts. But, you know, what do I know? Maybe there are armies of fish. I, I don't know. But um, Habakkuk says, no, they all just, they're doing their own thing and they're vulnerable. And the Babylonians are there like these greedy fishermen. They just take them up with a hook. They catch them in their net. They, they gather them up in their dragnet and they rejoice and they're glad. They empty it out. They go for it again and they just keep going. They're, they're greedy to amass wealth and cities, etc. Um, and then he says, they, then they sacrifice to their net. They burn incense to their dragnet. Does that mean like they love fishing? <laughs> like some of us might love fishing? No. That just means basically there's a worship of power and dominance and the things that bring them power uh, and wealth. They have, that brings them sumptuous food and a hearty share. And Habakkuk says, are you really just going to sit around to the Lord and just watch them keep filling up and emptying their net? with um, con continually slaughtering nations without mercy. They're just slaying without pity. And um, so this kind of fits also with what we'll see in chapter two of the Babylonians, um, just this idea of being greedy for wealth, uh, just sort of without being able to be satiated at all. Okay, so, <clears throat> so again, right? God, you're wise, you're eternal. You're all knowing, you're good, you're pure. How can you do this? And then he, he sort of articulates his, his own attitude after having asked this. He, he prepares himself to be humbled in, in verse one of chapter two, um, right? So he has sort of this interesting perspective. He says, I, all right, now God, I know I'm wrong. I, and I may have even been impetuous in questioning you. I fully expect to be shown the error of my ways and I'm happy for you to do it. Because that will mean that I have come to a deeper understanding of your ways. And by doing that, I'll have come to a deeper understanding of, of you, of God, right? And so, um, and so God's more complete answer. <clears throat> so here's the more, a, a little bit more developed answer that God gives then to the questions. So in, in verses two and three of, uh, of chapter two, then God begins by noting that Habakkuk can, as I've written here, rest assured that the appointed judgment will come, though it may take a while. And uh, of course, our question might be, well, why might it take a while? And, and like I said, probably somewhere around 25 years after this oracle. And why? Well, because of God's patience. You remember I said Habakkuk, may, maybe he had forgotten God's patience. God's reminding him 
uh, here, I think, of his patients. Um, and, and this leads us to Habakkuk 2.4, um, kind of a key verse in the Bible. Uh, it's used by the Apostle Paul as a means of explaining that salvation is gained by faith and not by works of the law. Over against, you know, the Pharisees and the Judaizers who had misinterpreted the, the Old Testament to teach that salvation uh, was through mere obedience to the law. So when, when you think about the gospel, Paul, uh, the way Paul presents the gospel in his writings, his primary Old Testament evidence for salvation by grace through faith was twofold. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, uh, first found in Genesis 15, 6, part of the covenant language, right? Uh, Abraham's response to the covenant, and uh, quoted by Paul in Romans 4, 9, and in 4, 22, and in Galatians 3, 6, and we also see it in James 2, 23. The second one, though, is the, the claim, the righteous shall live by faith, or by his faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4, and uh, it's also, it's quoted by Paul in Romans 1.17, and in Galatians 3.11, and we also see it in Hebrews 10.38. Uh, whether or not you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, uh, it's still, it's there. Um, so what do we, how do we interpret Habakkuk 2.4 in the context of Habakkuk, and uh, how do we reconcile it with how Paul does this? Well, it seems to me that, that Habakkuk's almost passing comment, that's how it appears in uh, 2.4, it's almost like a passing comment. It's uh, so key to Paul because uh, it is in Habakkuk a final call to repentance. In other words, here at the beginning of God's answer, God you know, God is preparing to give the final answer to Habakkuk's million-dollar question uh, by reference to what we've already seen in our previous prophecies uh, to what it has an end-of-days aspect to it, a day of the Lord that prefigures the great and terrible judgment upon the whole earth. And yet there, uh, there, in one, there is one last reminder that the Lord is merciful and gracious, that there is a slight delay, and, uh, and then here God calls his people one last time to repentance in verse 4. I mean, he says they can remain proud and their souls will not be right within them, or alternately, they can have a faith of a heartfelt kind, a lasting repentance, which does lead to righteousness, right? So, and again, remember, Judah had avoided almost certain disaster at the hands of the Assyrians when Hezekiah had fallen to his knees in prayerful repentance uh, just a couple of generations earlier. And they had recently enjoyed a time of unparalleled success under King Josiah, uh, a kind of success that, that had almost messianic, uh, an almost messianic feel to it. But the revival was not in their hearts. And so this is kind of like one last call for them to put it in their hearts. So, so what is God's more complete answer? Well, it's got several facets to it. At a certain level, his answer is have faith, right? So again, to in, in 
uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. God says to Habakkuk, trust that I know what I'm doing, that my actions are righteous and just and holy and wise and will ultimately achieve my purposes. And we can see hints of this, uh, hints of this throughout the rest of chapter 2 and also in the final song of chapter 3. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So in uh, chapter 2, verse 14, he says, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, right? The whole earth. That's covenant language. Remember that very first week we talked about this, and then we pointed back to that over and over again. That's covenant language, and that's uh, like end of days, final fulfillment of God's plan for creation and history. That's the kind of language here in verse 14. Also in verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him, right? God says, I have not yet left the temple in Jerusalem. I'm still here amongst you. Um, and interestingly, it's not long after this time that uh, we're told by Ezekiel that the spirit of the Lord was departing from the temple in Jerusalem just before the, Assyria, uh, the uh, Babylonian conquest. Um, so again, here's the point. A hint, uh, a hint of the fact that the earth is God's temple is here. He needs no house and he is no regional or, lo or located deity. Um, perhaps we even have a hint of uh, the indwelling of the spirit, but not obviously expressly said here. So the other, the other facets of God's more complete answer besides have faith and I'm accomplishing my purposes and my plan has not been derailed is also, number two, Judah is sinful and judgment is appropriate for them. Um, and then, uh, right, so while admittedly Babylon is sinful and deserves to be judged, and maybe verse 5, uh, it's a bit unclear because we don't know who, to whom it refers. Most scholars think it refers to the Babylonians, so that in verse 5, God is reiterating that Babylon will also fall under judgment, right? Um, but the rest of God's answer is to note that things are, not, are simply not as cut and dried as Habakkuk would like to think. And uh, and he, ha he offers up a series of woes here, um, and I've, I've listed them on uh, the slide there. Um, what is interesting is that these crimes, these woes, uh, are obvious, they all obviously apply to Babylon, right? They're, they're all clearly references to Babylon. But what's interesting about them is that they could also be applied to Judah. And I'm going to let I think I'm going to let Stefana talk about uh, these woes applying to Babylon. Well, you've got them, uh, you know, laid out for you right there. I just want to make a couple of points about um, about each section. So again, in um, like in two five, uh, he as he's kind of finishing off the section that John just talked about, um, he talks about this this nation. Um, being greedy for for wealth they can never get enough just like the grave just like Sheol can never get enough dead they can't be satisfied but have to plunder more nations and people um it says in verse uh um oh my gosh oh i can't find it right now that he oh sorry it's in it's in um five he enlarges his appetite okay he he um, increases his desire 
for more and more to swallow up nations and people. And um, these two words that probably are interchangeable are used um, frequently throughout this section. So nations and people, nations and people. So there are these woe oracles against Babylon, and it's the word oi, right? So each time you see woe, it's oi. So um, uh, Babylon, uh, Babylon is greedy. They take what's not theirs. They enrich themselves by um, loading themselves down. But Habakkuk says, you know, the bill is going to come due for that. Uh, very soon because of violence again violence and bloodshed um, 9 to 11 woe to the coveter of evil gain who tries to to protect himself with his wealth and in reality the house that you build for yourself with somebody else's wealth to, to protect yourself is actually going to witness against you because that wealth was taken unjustly and he has in verse 10 you're sinning against your own self which is very interesting and, and comes up, this idea comes up again in this section. You're sinning against your own self when you sin against somebody else. Um, 12 to 14, building a town with bloodshed, establishing a city by sin, um, by violence and by aggression. So the amassing of wealth from unjustly, uh, for, uh, unjustly is useless because one day, uh, as Habakkuk says, that the whole earth uh, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. The knowledge of the Lord, again, the same word that we saw in Hosea, right? It's going to be filled with God's glory all over the earth. And then the word glory is kind of picked up in uh, verses 15 to 17. There's a, a picture of getting somebody drunk, uh, literally pressing him to your bottle to make them vulnerable and to humiliate them, to shame them. And Babylon will be treated likewise by God. Uh, he says the cup in the Lord's right hand, it's like the cup of wrath that God is bringing against them. It's very ominous. You know, you're going to drink too, and you're going to be drunk, and you're going to be then shamed and degraded. And so it's this idea of sinning against your own self when you sin against your neighbor, right? So in degrading someone else, you degrade yourself. In shaming someone else to bring glory to yourself, you actually shame yourself, and shame is brought upon you um, by the Lord. Um, the last one, idolatry. So woe to idolaters who worship the things that their hands have crafted. Again, it's relying on yourself, just like they relied on their own strength with the fishnet stuff. Um, so here they're relying on, um, on, on idols that you make with your own hands. So you, you can see the... Um, the, the ridiculousness of that. Um, so an idol, it looks good, it's flashy, it's attractive, but it's dead. <laughs> it has no breath. It's the word ruach, right? The word for, for wind, for spirit, okay? Um, but in contrast to those idols, he says in verse 20, but the Lord is alive. He's in his holy temple. All the earth must um, uh, treat him with reverential awe. And by the way, I know some of you really like the hymns, and this is a hymn, isn't it? Do you know it? The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence, keep silence before him. It's a really nice hymn that's kind of like a call to worship. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. Okay, so the woes uh, apply equally to Judah as they, as they do to Babylon. And uh, I've given you a, a number of quotes here from Jeremiah, but just to just to show, right, again, Jeremiah is contemporary, uh, contemporary with, uh, with Habakkuk or, or thereabouts. So, uh, again, the, the complaint of extortion and greed in Jeremiah, he says, all from the greatest to the least 
are greedy for gain, talking about the Judeans. Um, they take advantage to others. In Jeremiah 9, he says, you lie to your neighbors, you speak cordially to them, but then you set traps for them behind their back. Um, build the, those who build the city on bloodshed, uh, in Jeremiah 2, when he's, he's speaking of Jehoiakim, this very king, he says, your eyes and heart are only set on dishonest gain, look at that, on shedding innocent blood and on extortion. There's that exact same word. Uh, then also uh, in Jeremiah 2, just talking generally to the Judeans, on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor. So again, bloodshed is uh, driving the economy of Judah. Uh, drunkenness, uh, lewdness, and violence. Look at this. Young men visit the houses of harlots, and everyone lusts after his neighbor's wife. That's in Jeremiah 5. And then uh, idolatry is very prevalent. Um, for example, Jeremiah 7.30, they have set up detestable idols in the house that bears my name, right? In the temple itself, there are idols. Uh, in, and then also we see similar uh, comments in 16.18 and 19.13, other places. Jeremiah 10, the whole chapter is a, uh, an argument against idolatry. So clearly all of these woes not only applied to Babylon, but they also apply to Judah. And again, that comes back to part of God's answer. Judah is sinful, and Judah deserves any judgment that I bring upon them. Well, okay, so, so here's the point then in God's answer, right? The Babylonians are doing exactly what they want to do. The Babylonians wanted to in, want to invade Judah. They enjoy meeting out punishment and cruelty. And so they're morally guilty for their crimes, and they will be justly punished by God. Also, the Judeans want to turn from the Lord. They choose or have chosen to engage in all those sinful acts we just cataloged. And so they are guilty, and they are justly punished. And of course, if you know the story of Jeremiah, they try and kill him for, for his uh, prophecies and his call for them to turn away from idolatry and to turn uh, turn back to God um, and to submit to Babylon, actually. Um, so, again, uh, we, we don't, Habakkuk doesn't, or God doesn't give us all the answers on how it is that God uses these uh, their sins or their own sinful inclinations, their own choices that are sinful to bring about his will. But he does point out that it is their own choice. It is their own desires. It is their free decisions that are make them culpable for their sin, and therefore they are justly punished. So that's God's answer to... Um, to uh, to Habakkuk, but also uh, it it culminates with Habakkuk's song, which also includes part of the answer, which is God's covenant still stands. And I'm going to move this to the top here. So God's covenant stands, and uh, we see this in chapter three. Then is God's promise of a future deliverance, a deliverance from. The immediate chastisement, relatively speaking, and I mean, it's still 25 years in the future, but the immediate chastisement of the Babylonian captivity, 
but also a final deliverance of his people, right? What we might say is the true children of Abraham who live by faith in the final judgment upon humanity. And I think Stefan is going to talk a little bit about chapter three here. Well, this is a, um, a, a psalm, maybe a dirge. Um, it's very clear that it's a, a, a song and very appropriate if Habakkuk is a priest there at the temple. Um, it seems like Habakkuk's response to what God has showed him. And if you notice in this book, um, a lot of times he says, you know, God showed him something or he's going to look to see. It's like he's, he's seeing something. Maybe he's having um, kind of a, a vision as a response from the Lord. It also reminds me of um, the book of Job, kind of in, in a nutshell. You know, Job asks lots and lots of questions and maybe sounds even a little accusatory of God. Um, and then finally, after God um, answers Job, <laughs> shows himself to Job, um, Job says, okay, uh, I've, I've, heard, I've heard tell of you, and now I've seen you. Um, Habakkuk doesn't say exactly the same, but he says, I've heard the report about you, and I stand in awe. Then he says, um, revive and make known your works in the midst of these years. I'm not sure what that means in the midst of these years, but this is another place where I feel like, um, you know, I can connect with Habakkuk. Maybe you can as well. And we ask the Lord, you know, um, what should we do? In these times in which we live with this upheaval and with ferment, what should we do? You know, um, um, revive us, um, make known your works, um, keep us in your mercy. <laughs> Remember mercy. So this word rahem, we saw this in Hosea and also I think in um, stuff in um, I can't remember. And anyway, and a couple of others. It's a word for mercy, right? God's compassionate mercy. So in your wrath, remember mercy. That's a good thing to pray right now. So this song describes God as a divine warrior who saves his people by marching towards them, uh, crushing their enemies, and it's all presented in terms of his power over the natural order. Um, and, and some of the powers sort of like in the natural order were seen by a lot of ancient peoples as representing the forces of chaos. So um, just a couple of things from here. Um, God uh, shows himself uh, sort of in a, in a terrifying way by his brilliance as he's wielding lightning and brings plague and pestilence with him as weapons. Um, he, he overcomes chaotic forces uh, in the natural order that are under his command and they bow to his dominance. Uh, for example, you see the sea. Um, lots of images of water are presented here. So the sea was kind of like um, uh, sometimes um, in, in the Canaanite religion um, known as a, a deity that represents chaos, the deity Yam. Uh, you see rivers, waters represented, the deep or Tehom, which we've had this term before. It's the Babylonian equivalent of Tiamat, who is the goddess of the watery deep. So she's also a symbol of chaos. And so, and so Habakkuk is presenting God as being, you know, lord over all of this chaos. He, he stomps all over them with his horses and his chariots. And when he talks about the heavens, the sun and the moon stand still, it's like they're standing aside. You know, they're not even needed because God is so bright, but they're also like standing out of the way, you know, because here comes God. Um, so the waters, the heavens, and the earth. He talks about the mountains, the hills. They're, they're splitting and shuddering and, and bowing to him. And so God is marching over all of this. He's marching over all the earth and over, stomping over the nations to come and save his people, verse 13, to save his people and his anointed and to crush the wicked 
and his dominion. And so this is what God is doing for his people. Um, verse 16 kind of connects back with verse 2. So verse 2 says, I heard about you and I'm in awe. I'm afraid. Then verse 16 says, I heard and I trembled. And so, you know, what is he, what is he waiting for? Is he waiting for the invasion, waiting for God to invade the enemy? Um, the day of trouble, you know, which one is it? Or is it both, you know? And um, verses uh, 17 through the end are just um, very, very famous, packed with faith, I would say, even in the face of evil that you know is either upon you or coming upon you. Um, you know, even if all their food sources fail, all their agriculture fails, um, Habakkuk rejoices in his trust in God, that God is his salvation, that God is his strength. After the time of weakness, he says, trembling and quivering and, and rottenness in his bones. So after that time of, of weakness and dread and the paralysis of fear, Habakkuk lives in patience and in confidence in God and God's ability to save and God's ability to be his strength. And also now he's wiser. He rests in, in humility at God's right to discipline his people. So, yeah, so uh, we see Habakkuk, like Stefan said, there's some similarities between him and he and Job. And they both ultimately, uh, at the end, <laughs> their response to God is, I trust, I trust you in you, uh, I fear you, and uh, I wait on you. And uh, Habakkuk, right, like we see here, he will walk on high places, um, right? He's, he's exalted. He's going to trust in God. And of course, that's a good place uh, to end there. So uh, next week is uh, Haggai. And, um, and we're back to the questions thing. So, so we're done. <laughs>